0: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to this episode of New Books in Intellectual History part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Thomas Edward Kingston, and today I'm joined by Professor Jeremy Friedman, who is the Associate Professor in Business Administration at Harvard Business School. We're going to be talking about his new book, Ripe for Revolution, Building Socialism in the Third World, which is out now by Harvard University Press. I personally found this book an incredibly interesting read. Both, both, from my personal interests, and on uh, touching on many subjects that I wasn't aware um, of, these countries that are so often overlooked. I think what crucially shone uh, in this book to me was a very different understanding of socialism and and how we need to adapt beyond the um, the binary we often see, um, either East West, or internally uh, in terms of Soviet and Chinese. Um, so, it's really great to have you here today um thank you for joining us
0: thank you very much for having me thomas
1: so uh let's go in at the deep end why did you write this book
0: well besides a certain strain of masochism i think when it comes to uh archival research um i think that the the major impetus was that i felt there's sort of an inadequacy thus far in the historiography on socialism Um, and i think the way we tend to write about uh, socialism and movements on the left as if is as if they are sort of individualistic um responses to uh different phenomena in different times and places um and don't have kind of a coherence across space and time uh so i think for example we we tend to write about soviet interventions in you know the developing world during the cold war as if these are episodes of soviet foreign policy or competition with china or things like that um, and there is no sort of overall idea of how socialism as a project evolves across space and time. So, you know, we have this evolving uh, field of history of capitalism. Um, and history of capitalism, we, we understand, of course, that, you know, capitalism not only is it difficult to pin down sort of theoretically what the original institutions are, or what it means, um, but capitalism is not the same in all spaces and times. Um, uh, and yet there is something to the idea that, um, given that, you know, everyone is part of a certain system, um, and that, you know, there are institutions and ideologies and ideas that cross borders, um, that there is this kind of, you know, learning, developing process that happens internationally. And so that's, you know, kind of the core of history of capitalism, history of socialism. I think socialism needs to be seen, uh, in a similar manner. So for example, I, um, having written this book, I was emailed by someone, um, who, who wrote uh, a review or said they wrote a review and I didn't get to see much of the review. Um, But I saw the first couple lines and I saw right away, he said, building um, in scare quotes, so-called socialism. And at that point, I immediately knew there was a problem with the review because um, the point is there's no so-called socialism. Um, Just like, you know, if someone had, we're looking at Sven Beckert's book, Empire of Cotton and said, well, this is so-called capitalism, right? Because real capitalism involves free labor and free markets and perfect information. And, you know, here you have. Um, you know, coercion and, and violence, and, you know, that's not real capitalism. We'll be looking at it and say, well, that, that's absurd, right? You have a textbook idea of how capitalism is supposed to work, but in reality, this is how capitalism has actually functioned. Um, that's sort of, you know, the, the attitude we have to take towards understanding socialism is that, yes, you know, we have textbook ideas of how socialism is supposed to work, but that's not how it's ever actually functioned in practice, um, you know, and it can be perfected over time. Um, but as historians, right, our job is not to, you know, look at the the purest version of the the ideology, our job is to look at how it's actually evolved. And, um, so I think the the first thing I wanted to do was create this, you know, it's a difficult thing to create an international history of socialism, um, because, you know, it involves lots of archives and lots of languages. And, um, I was very, very lucky in writing this book that I got access to things in China that are no longer accessible. Um, I went to Russia at just the right time in 2019, Uh, Certainly, I don't know the next time I'll be doing research in Moscow. Um, So, I mean, there are difficulties involved here. Um, But the idea that socialism is, you know, a global project in which um, all the various entities that consider themselves as building socialism are really in conversation um, in this process of trial and error Um, and that the socialism that the versions of socialism that we have now and socialism is still very much, you know, a live phenomenon, not just You know, in the Chinese Communist Party in its version of it or, um, you know, in Cuba or somewhere else. But in, in terms of what's happening politically in the United States, in the UK, in Europe, right, socialism is probably more alive now politically in the United States than it has been at any point since, you know, at least the 1960s, if not the 1930s. Um, and the version of socialism we have now is not the same as what it was in the Soviet Union in the 1930s or in China in the 1960s. Um, but there is a lineage. Um, there is you know, a way to trace the evolution. Um, and so there's a relationship. Um, and I think you know, it's important for us to understand that sort of global process of experimentation and trial and error and evolution. Um, and that's the, you know, I think the real impetus behind writing a book like this.
1: And I think that's something that really shines through in this because um I suppose it strikes me it strikes me as kind of odd when um we see the the Chinese and the the Soviets navigating these various forms of socialism and they're engaging with them uh to varying levels but they're understanding there is this sort of socialist or um uh, Along those lines, or what they can see as socialist uh bedrock underneath all of this um, and these are people that we would oh, p- parties people uh organizations that we would often see as like super ideologically pure um and yet they're engaging with it and then, as you point out, um there has been this sort of lack of shall we say um open minded or inclusive uh engagement i think i said a very purist approach um that's based upon ideology. And I think that's actually something that um and I'm going back to front here, and this come because this comes out in the conclusion, but you talk about ideology in quite a different way to how it's commonly understood in the book. Um and I think it would help the readers if you just give us a little brief outline of that.
0: Well, again, I think the way ideology has usually been treated um in history and political science um is as there's sort of binary. You're either Ideological, or you're pragmatic, or you're realist, or something along those lines. Um, and ideological, especially the way it's used, I think, in sort of the contemporary United States, is almost as a synonym for irrational. Um, you know, that someone is, is is ideological, meaning they're making choices that are based on sort of you know phantoms that they're you know, stuck in their heads. Um, and I think that you know, and this leads us to to sort of clue that well, if if you know, in order to prove that a political leader is ideological. In order to prove a political leader is ideological, we sort of say, well, if you believe in this ideology, you would do the following, you know, five things. And if they're doing the following five things, then we know they're ideological. And if they deviate from those five things, and they're somehow pragmatic or realist or cynical, um, and I think that's sort of a misunderstanding of how ideology actually works. So the point is, you know, that again, if you you know if you look at the history of capitalism. Um, there, there are certain works, especially on the history of sort of, you know, capitalist countries aid in the developing world, um, the 1960s, 1970s. And there's increasing awareness that, um, you know, they adapted things like state-led development and planning that we wouldn't associate with capitalism, but they thought, well, this is how it has to work here. And eventually through this, you will get back towards private investment. And so there's, you know, the kind of ways of, of, manipulating the ideology or you know, massaging certain of its tenants in order to achieve the greater objective in the end. Um, and yet somehow when it comes to the socialist side, we've sort of looked at this and said, well, this means that they weren't, didn't really believe they weren't really communists and such. So I, I have a different model. I argue in the conclusion that what ideology really is, um, is a systematically simplified method for understanding reality that facilitates judgment and action. Uh, the idea basically is that you know reality as it is is infinitely complicated and if we try to assimilate reality in all of its complexities we'd be paralyzed by indecision and so what we do is we pick out the parts of reality that are most salient right in any situation we say what matters here what doesn't matter here you know who's responsible for this and so you know we, we we think about you know picking apart kind of you know the idea of things that are phenomenal epiphenomenal class identity is fundamental Racial identity is epiphenomenal, or the other way around, right? Or gender is is fundamental, and something else is epiphenomenal. Um, and so these are really kind of the stories that you know motivate our understanding of the world and what's happening. And it doesn't mean that you know because you have a certain understanding of the world, you necessarily that necessitates a certain action. It facilitates judgment and action because it makes it easier for you to understand. Okay, well this is what's happening, right? This is what I should do, or this is what I could do. Um, but how? right, that understanding translates into policy um, is filtered through, you know, beliefs, capabilities and interests. Um, so, for example, you know, you might not like, you know, you, you might feel like, you know, a war that's happening, let's say, in Algeria or Vietnam is another instance of, you know, capitalist imperialism attempting to impose its will on a colonial peoples. But if your belief, your belief is that if I engage in this war, it might lead to nuclear war. Um, that's still going to impact your decision as to whether or not, you know, you send in troops to Vietnam or Algeria, which did for the Soviets. Um, capabilities matters too. So, you know, if you're the Chinese and you say, right, that you know, we think that the missile should remain in Cuba, right, that it would be a mistake to remove the missiles from Cuba, but you don't have the capability to send your own forces halfway the world to Cuba, right? And that's also going to impact what you can actually do in that situation. And then, of course, their interests, right? If, you know, if you're Yugoslavia and you're afraid of, you know, what it means to have, uh, you know, Soviet troops in, in your backyard in, in, in Hungary, um, that might affect how you react to the Soviet invasion of Hungary. So, so the point is that, you know, you can, making these decisions does not mean that you have betrayed your ideology, it does not mean that you're, you know, you're merely cynical or pragmatic and, you know, betrayed your ideology. Um, you can still maintain your ideology and make different decisions. And so people with the same ideology or similar ideologies can come to different policy conclusions.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that seems especially relevant in a lot of sort of contemporary political debates. We see where um, we seem to seem to have the binary that is often, oh, the more the government does things, the more socialist it is. Um, And then on the other side, we might have this extremely purist point of view that is, well, well, it's not actually uh, real socialism because it isn't as it was expressed in the work of Marx and it doesn't fit this very specific uh, process. Um, And I think that leads us very well into uh why you pick these countries that are um but for many people might not seem to have very obvious links um they're across three continents i mean as the as the book suggests um what they have in common is that they are in what um would be called in sorry said common parlance the third world um but they're very different in terms of their background their um histories and even and the leaders even and their and their paths of development so um we'll talk about the the individual examples uh, later but uh briefly um why these countries
0: well so i feel like i could have picked many more countries i could have picked um i mean part of the the importance of the story is that it really touched um just about every country and what was then called the third world what we now more commonly would call the global south um almost every single country. So I, I could have picked, I, I was actually urged by some of my reviewers, you know, why isn't there a chapter on Nicaragua and why isn't there a chapter on Ghana? And, um, I mean, I would have loved to write a Nicaragua chapter, but, you know, HUP only gives you 135,000 words. So, um, (laughs) there are limitations in these things, but, um, you know, so, so on the one hand it, 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 it could have, it could have included almost every country in the developing world, which is why this is, this is, you know, such an important story, right? It's not limited to really a few outliers. Um, I picked these particular five countries so i mean part of it was just that these five countries sort of uh cover both the, the geographical and chronological scope of the cold war so you know southeast asia the middle east two in sub-saharan africa one latin america um and really beginning with the late 1940s and ending in the in the early 1980s um so in an important sense given the timing these are not really cases in that they're parallel but they're actually episodes they're sequential um and that goes to my notion of you know, process and trial and errors—they really build on one another over time. Uh, but I pick these five countries also because they're each sort of paradigmatic of certain key questions that were seen to have broad relevance. So, you know, how do you build socialism in a country with a predominantly agrarian economy? How do you build socialism in a country with, a, you know, a democratic political system? How do you build socialism in a country in which um, religion and religious authorities have a tremendous amount of social and political power? Um, these are all major considerations that weren't relevant to just one country at one time, but relevant to many countries, and the countries I picked were sort of paradigmatic. Um, and each of these countries, you know, was paradigmatic not just in the sense of you know answering or seen to being answered as one question, but also because there was a period of time in which it really was at the center of sort of global attention. So, you know, Angola is not a place a lot of people have been to; um, it's not a place most people think about on a daily basis. But in the winter of 1975-1976, Angola was kind of this you know, center stage, um, in terms of, you know, geopolitics, it was on the front page of the New York times regularly. Um, Chile also, right. Chile might not be the first place people think of, but in 1973, Chile was, you know, center of mind. And so these were each countries which at one particular period of time did sort of become kind of, you know, center of, of the global arena.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think that's quite interesting. As you say, people don't often think about these countries. Um, and I think often if they do think about these countries um, within even within sort of the socialist uh, paradigm, uh, it's often through a very different uh, framing. Um, and this brings us to the first uh, country, Indonesia, um, which has, I think, has seen a recent uptick, maybe the last ten years or so, in focusing um, what's being described as some by as genocide or a democide or, or uh, I mean. Indisputably mass killings uh is the is a straightforward way, which is obviously the downfall of um the Communist Party um and many other people who were obviously actually unrelated to that. Um but I think that, that 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 um what a lot of people look at in this thing is they miss out on the rise of it and the as you say, the the potential it had. Um, and that's something that really shines through in that chapter, is that this was not a um, something that many people expected to just go away, and it played a big role in on, 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 on a geopolitical th- uh, in, in the framing at that time uh, in, in a very important um, part of the world.
0: Yes, yeah, so I mean, Indonesia. The reason I, I picked Indonesia. And the reason I started with Indonesia is that. Um, So the Indonesian Communist Party uh, was the largest non-ruling Communist Party in the world at the time. Um, We tend to think about the importance of, you know, for example, the French Communist Party, the Italian Communist Party. Indonesia, by 1965, according to some estimates, if you include, so it had a population of roughly 100 million people. It was also one of the most populous countries in the world right after the U.S., the USSR, China, and India. It's it's number five. Um, 100 million people, um, the Communist Party plus its affiliate organization, so the trade unions, Um, the women's organization, the youth organization and such, uh, estimated have between 20 and 25 million members. So roughly, you know, one fifth to one quarter of the entire country, Um, an enormous amount of people. And it was really the most important, you know, most well-organized political force in the world's fifth largest country, which also happened to be strategically important, you know, given it's basically controls the sea lanes between um, Indian and Pacific oceans. Um, It was an important player, not just in the Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union, but also in the Sino-Soviet split between China and the USSR. Um, so it's really this sort of key strategic uh, country which has this communist party that is a dominant political player that seems perpetually on the verge of gaining power, but never quite gets there. Um, and because of you know the size of the country, its diversity, it combines so many of the most important uh, elements. Um, it sets up a lot of these important questions. So it is, you know, a, a primarily agrarian country, which relies to degree on natural resources, which it doesn't process itself. Um, and so there's a question of industrializing the economy and developing the economy. Um, at the same time, it is a predominantly Islamic country. Um, it is a country where Islamic organizations have a tremendous amount of power and really sort of dominate uh, the countryside in many, in many parts of the country. Um, and so religion is a major element. Um, it is a country that, you know, it's a post-colonial state. Um, it actually fought for its independence. Um, and that, that fight for independence was seen as being incomplete um, because uh, New Guinea was still um, in the hands of the Dutch. Um, Malaysia was seen as this British conspiracy. Um, you know, later on, it would conquer East Timor as well. So it's this, you know, struggle for, for, it, for independence against imperialism that is still seen as being in progress. Um, so in many ways, right, it sort of combines uh, a lot of the and, – and then the key on top of all that is that it was – between, you know, in in the 1950s, it was this democratic, multi-party regime, which then becomes consolidated under this uh, charismatic, radical, left-wing, anti-imperialist leader, uh, Sukarno, who is sort of, you know, a paradigmatic example in many ways of precisely this kind of, you know, radical, anti-imperialist autocrat, which, you know, we see in other parts of the developing world in this period that Soviets would often have to deal with, uh, you know, people like Nasser, for example. Um, And so... Indonesia really combines many of these key questions and a lot of, you know, what happens in Indonesia and then what, what goes wrong in Indonesia? Because as you point out, right, there's, I believe that, you know, the term that tends to be used now is politicide, um, which, you know, the killing of, you know, a what, what were believed to be members of a political organization on a mass scale, we're talking about half a million people. This is one of the largest mass killings in the 20th century. And it's, again, it's it's rarely mentioned, it seems, um, outside of Indonesia, although In Indonesia, it's very much contemporary politics. Um, I think that's true for all five countries in this book is, you know, to people in the West, perhaps this seems like ancient history. To people in these countries, even in Chile, for example, we get to Chile, you know, they just elected a a young president, 36 years old. Um, But the election seemed very much about, you know, relitigating Allende versus Pinochet from the 1970s before the president was even born. Um, So these politics are very much alive. And Indonesia, right, the politics of 1965 and the PKI are still very much alive, right? In contemporary elections, you know, insults about being communist or pro-Chinese are still thrown around. Um, And so I think this is, you know, it's it's this tremendously important story which ends in this great tragedy that sort of foreshadows uh, a lot of the major questions that the book takes up going forward.
1: Yeah, and we see this sort of, uh, a lot of these things playing out, as you say. Um, for example, you talk about the the the, the role of China in this. Um, and for example, in Indonesia, um, the Chinese, like in many parts of Southeast Asia, are a, a market-dominant minority. Um, but obviously within a sort of socialist or a communist outlook, these, these are not uh, sort of, the people that you would necessarily um, be automatically recruiting because these are very much capitalists um, within a sort of Marxian framework. Um, and then obviously there is this notion of um, ethnic Chinese versus being Chinese passport holder as well in this sort of thing. And obviously that uh, complicates things a bit. So, I mean, and this is something that plays out throughout the book is that uh, there is this sort of toing and froing before the Sino-Soviet split even um, between... Uh, these different models and um, I think one of the one of the sort of most uh, interesting things that comes out the Indonesia uh, chapter is that you talk about with the sort of downfall of it that pretty much wipes out the chances of China having a major uh, role in like big countries Um, and it also shifts and I think that's what something that's really interesting about how you frame this is that yes you have the story of the individual countries but there are also these reflections and lessons that are learned um as we go along by the sort of shall we say spectating powers um i mean in terms of indonesia what was the what is the big lesson for for for, the for the for the soviet bloc and the shall we say the 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 left-leaning world
0: Well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call them spectating countries. I think, obviously, the Soviets, the Chinese, others were very much involved in Indonesia. um, And they all take various lessons out. They're not always the same lesson. Um, I think the Soviets, several key lessons. One is that, you know, they have to take religion a lot more seriously. Um, That, you know, one of the sort of Achilles heels of socialism in the developing world is precisely its association with atheism. Um, And it's being seen as being anti-religious. And, you know, in parts of the world where lots of people are religious, and not only are religious in a private sense, but in which religious institutions have a lot of public power, political power. Um, and so that was seen as being one of the flaws because ultimately a lot of the actual killing in Indonesia wasn't done by the Indonesian military itself, but was being done by um, Islamic, you know, rural organizations um, against, you know, communist local communist activists who are seen as, you know, trying to seize lands from you know, al Kaf and things like that from, you know, mosques and religious trusts. Um, and so, so one lesson was that, you know, socialism has to be, much more adroit, um, and, you know, willing to work with, uh, religious, uh, authorities, um, which, um, had different sorts of consequences in Iran as we'll get to. Um, that's one lesson. The second lesson is, well, actually, honestly, the importance of, of democracy. Um, the Soviets had, when Sukarno overthrew the parliamentary regime, um, saying that, you know, he was going to have guided democracy, was what he called it, um, the Soviets are actually supportive of this and pushed the PKI to support the transition to guided democracy from parliamentary democracy. Um, and they thought that this would mean, this would be because Sukarno himself without, you know, the sort of pressure from the bourgeois parties would be able to, to have an accelerated path towards socialism, you know, given centralized political authority. Um, and so they pushed the communist party to, to support this. Um, and of course it ended up with Sukarno, um, you know, being overthrown by the military uh, and, and this leading to, you know, there were no sort of democratic freedoms to fall back on. Uh, And so, you know, the military sort of ran roughshod over the Communist Party. Um, And this changed by the time we get to Chile, um, which we'll get to soon. Um, In Chile, the the Soviets actually decide that preserving bourgeois democracy, preserving constitutionalism is actually important. It's an an important safeguard um, so that, you know, the military doesn't have free reign to sort of destroy the left. Um, So that's... I say that's that's another you know important lesson here, and at the same time you know not necessarily to trust kind of the radical left wing you know nationalist uh, figure the, the Sukarno type when you see it somewhere else if this person is not a, a true socialist. Um, so those are those are some of the key lessons. Um, I think an interesting lesson as well for sort of the reader is you know the nature of of communist parties and what communist parties are. So you know there's always been an argument um, whether communist parties are simply um, you know, tools of, of international communism, or whether they're, or instead, you know, domestic political parties. Um, and are they are they really international actors or not? And I think one thing you look at the, the Indonesian story and the relationship between the Soviet Communist Party and the Indonesian Communist Party, it sort of comes out they're kind of like on the franchise model. You know, you think about sort of the owner of a local McDonald's, and um, in the sense that yes, you know, they're they're locally owned and they're responsive to local conditions but they're also susceptible to pressures from corporate headquarters which is ultimately you know looking after the you know the global brand um, of communism you know what how what's happening in indonesia will affect you know the global brand of communism um and so there are there are responsibilities but also um you know obligations on both sides Uh, so these are all i think you know lessons that come out of indonesia um the soviets of course you know like to blame the indonesian tragedy on the chinese um and the chinese took different lessons away from indonesia
1: yeah I mean uh I think that's I mean that is a theme throughout the book as well about this adopting ad, ad, sorry adapting to local uh conditions and uh I mean that's obviously used as part of the rhetoric uh by Sukarno for even introducing guided democracy he talks about this uh, there's no need for this sort of confrontational politics instead decisions be made together and as you say when there is this religious um issue uh, that arises in Indonesia with the communist party they decide that actually maybe they're going to going to pick up um some more supporters amongst the more sort of syncretic or um less modernist uh groups. And I think that's something that then comes into the next uh country, Chile, uh, in a quite different way. I mean, you open with this quote about uh Allende says about how the revolution is going to be of a very like in like very Chilean characteristics with red wine and uh I think he talks about red wine and empanadas. Um as, and as you said, it's, it maybe is a bit of a dinner party um, to go against the, the the more the more famous quote. But then I think the other crucial thing about Chile is that it's a very different country politically and economically to pretty much every other country in the book, right? Um, which makes it even more interesting.
0: Yeah. So Chile is. I mean, it's it's a key country for many reasons. Um, first of all, there's you know, it, because of, of the nature of, as you say, the politics and the economy, it is a multi-party democracy. It is a, you know, it does have a, a constitution that's been in place since the 1830s. Um, and at the same time, it's also a mixed economy. So it has, it has more of a, uh, you know, balance between industry and agriculture than the other countries um, in, in, this, uh, in this book. Um, and so for that reason, it's seen, um, especially by the Soviets, as offering potentially a model um, beyond the Cold War stalemate uh, towards social transformation in the West. Uh, because, you know, it's, again, it's it has a tradition of Christian democracy, um, it has constitutionalism, it has a mixed economy, and so you know, the problem is that uh, you know, once the Cold War sort of crystallizes in Europe, um, the largest communist parties, right, are in France and Italy, but there's no chance of, you know, the West allowing, you know, Soviet troops to march into Paris or march into Rome the way they march into Budapest or Warsaw. Um, and so revolution is not going to happen that way. Communism will not spread that way. Um, but, right? There's always this chance that, well, you know, there, there has to be an electoral path to power, right? Somehow, or the French Communist Party forms a coalition, gets enough votes, you know, um, or the Italians do this. Um, and so that seems the only way. But, right, it, it, it hasn't happened. And there's a, always a question of, you know, can you actually get there? Can you really make revolution just through parliamentary means? Or would you have to make so many compromises um, that by the time, you know, you got to power, the, the agenda would be unrecognizable? And so Chile is, This example of, you know, a relatively Western, right, it is in the Western Hemisphere, it is in Latin America, it is primarily Catholic, um, and it does have more industries. For all these reasons, it seems like more of a potential model for the rest of Latin America and for, you know, what one might call Latin Europe, right, France, Italy, Spain, Um, as to how you get to socialism without a violent revolution, because it doesn't seem like a violent revolution is a possibility in those countries, Um, especially, you know, in the Western Hemisphere, it seems like the United States would simply not allow that to happen violently um so is this is the model right can is any sort of a proof of concept of how one can get to socialism through electoral democracy um and he's the first real um you know believing marxist that's elected through democratic process um and he does have this ultimate agenda to actually get to something that looks more like a soviet style planned economy um it's it's a longer term plan because it's not going to be enforced by violence but it is the goal and so for the soviets this is a very this is a very important test case of you know is there an actual parliamentary path and if there is a parliamentary path where this opens up a whole new strategy for latin america and western europe um so it's a very important case
1: yeah i mean and it also um it's quite interesting because i was quite surprised um to see the sort of the party names almost switched right because you have the communist party that are actually more moderate than the socialist party uh and i mean as you say the the reason one of the reasons you've included it is this um rejection of uh violent revolution however this is not a, a done deal within the leftist electoral um coalition or pact right that this is still something that's quite a a, a tense issue
0: Right. And this is something that in another way, again, this also sort of parallels a lot of what is happening in the West at this time. You think about the 60s and 70s. And you think about how, you know, the French Communist Party in 1968, right, in May of 68 in Paris, when the government is nearly overthrown, the French communists are really behind the events, right? They're not the most radical. Uh, the most radical are, you know, various kinds of groups that identify as Maoist or Trotskyite or something else. Um, the French Communist Party is seen as more state and institutional. Uh This is certainly true in the united states where the communist party is far smaller but where you know the radical left in the 1960s again you know they hold up pictures of you know che Guevara or Mao Zedong or Ho Chi Minh but nobody's holding up pictures of Brezhnev um, or Kassigan right in in Berkeley or Michigan in the 1960s um and so you know this is a story that's really happening and you know it's not an accident that the communist parties have become sort of more institutionalized um they're more tied to labor unions um which are also you know sort of um, increasingly, middle class institutions um, in the West in, in the 1960s—they, uh, you know, they're taking orders from Moscow in many cases. And Moscow, you know, its official policy is peaceful coexistence; um, it's not violent confrontation. And so that's their policy. And so it really is the case that most of the West, right? The radical left is has gone beyond certainly Soviet-style communism to embrace, you know, various figures like Che Guevara and others. And um, then you think, you know, later on in the 1970s about you know groups like. The Bader Meinhof gang, the Red Army Faction, the you know the um, the Weathermen in the United States, um, and you know they're all uh, Maoist, you know, various different types, and this, and this happens in 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 Chile as well. So the Communist Party is very very loyal to Moscow, probably considered you know the most loyal Communist Party in South America. Um, the Socialists have their leanings both towards China and Cuba, and then to the left of the Socialists, there's this you know leftist revolutionary movement. Um, who is, you know, in part, who's one of the key members, actually, Allende's daughter, um, who's having an affair with a Cuban intelligence officer um, at the Cuban embassy, who's, you know, helping funnel weapons to this leftist revolutionary movement. Um, And they're constantly a thorn in Allende's side as well, because, you know, they don't wait for, they're suspicious of the socialist government. They don't wait for, um, you know, cues from the government as to, for example, whether or not to, you know, seize lands or, you know, displace um, landowners. Um, they act on their own when they don't think the government's acting fast enough. And so you have this, you know, this same sort of dilemma you have elsewhere. So part of what the Soviets are learning, right, is not just, you know, can you bring socialism to power through parliamentary means vis-a-vis the bourgeoisie, but can you also control the far left, right? It's, It's a way of proving to the far left that, yes, you can do this through parliamentary means, and you don't have to do it through, you know, violent means. You don't have to grab rifles and go to the mountains to make this happen. So really the Soviets are trying to prove this model, you know, to both, the right and the left um it's you know it's a it's a two-sided battle
1: yeah and this is like one of the tensions that we see uh where um there doesn't really seem to be this um shall we say a defined i um, mean this is something that's pointed out by the, the east germans i think in particular is there is not this defined economic or even like a a, a practical plan because there's a lot of um a lot of sort of, uh, influence trading and, uh, appeasing going on, uh, that breaks from, um, the original plan, right? I mean, because, uh, one of the big things that stands out is a discussion about the size of farmland that's going to be nationalized, um, and the size of businesses and this sort of thing, um, which seems to be quite a, I mean, uh, relatively conservative at start it's not a it's not a we're going to seize everything overnight and good luck, like a sort of culture revolution um and i mean and and, and this i think is one of the reasons why um that the, there are there are these lessons learned right is that there is this um lack of defined plan
0: well we talked about ideology and i think you know you mentioned the, the farmland thing it's one of the most interesting ways i think in which you sort of see you know what seemed like incredibly abstruse ideological disagreements uh, turned, into have, turned out to have very concrete policy, uh, you know, outcomes. So the disagreement over, you know, how many stages of the revolution have? And this, this really sounds like the kind of thing that, you know, that you sit around, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, you know, in a university dorm room discussing the stages of revolution, right? Um, and yet, right, this, this directly bears on policy because, you know, if you believe that, you know, the revolution essentially only has one stage. Like first, you know, we, we, we come to power through electoral politics and then there's the civil war. Um, and, you know, that we come through the civil war. Or if you believe that, no, first, you know, we have to build a coalition, bring the middle classes over to our side, you know, create a dominant political coalition, and then move towards socialism. There's an extra stage in there. So this changes your land reform policy because the, the, you know, the communists are saying our goal is first to bring the middle classes over to our side right, to build a larger coalition, to make sure that we win the presidential election in 1976. So therefore, we want to only expropriate the biggest landlords, um, but we don't want to expropriate the middle class because we want to get them on our side. We want to look like we're just, you know, attacking the rich. And so they want, you know, to expropriate land over 80 hectares, um, which leaves the middle class in possession of their estates. Um, meanwhile, the socialists are saying, no, what we, we have to prepare for civil war as soon as possible, which means, We have to mobilize, right, the poorest elements of the peasantry to be ready to fight. And so to do that, right, we have to um, expropriate all land over 40 hectares because we're expropriating the middle class, too. Um, We want to mobilize and arm, you know, the poor because, you know, we're not waiting to have a presidential election in 1976. We're waiting for civil war in 1973 or 1974. Um, And so, you know, that discussion over how many stages to the revolution, leads to a direct disagreement over, you know, how big of a piece of land we should be expropriating.
1: Yeah, and this is another element towards the end of this, right, where there are these echoes and lessons learned from other things. And, I mean, this was covered uh, in in, in another relatively recent book by uh, Vincent Bevins, The Jakarta Method, where you start to see um, references to these anti-communist purges appearing in Santiago. Um, And, I mean, the... the, um, it's, a, it's, a hist- it's obviously what you've written is a historical book, but it really has these quite um, v- gripping elements. And I mean, when you get into that, the late stages where there's this almost an arms race between the various factions and nobody really knows what it's doing and it's all very anarchic. And obviously with the benefit of hindsight, where it can be like like face palming, where like, what what are you guys doing? Like, just, just sort of get your act together. Um, well, we see this sort of thing and obviously... Um, one of the key things about Chile is the role of the constitution, right? And this is one of the things that Allende is respecting. Um, And in Chile, one of the things we also see is the role of the military and its links to the constitution. And unfortunately for Allende, um, that's this um, element he doesn't really see coming, right?
0: Yes, well, I mean, one of the reasons it seemed like there was a possibility for success in Chile was precisely the fact that the military had not interfered in Chilean politics for so long. Um, And this made Chile relatively exceptional in Latin America, right, if you compare it to Argentina or Brazil or um, Peru or other places. Um, And so it seemed like because the military would respect, you know, the constitutional government um, and the result of elections, therefore, you wouldn't have to worry about um, a socialist government being overthrown militarily. Uh, And that, you know, that turned out to be, again, tragically wrong in in Chile. Um, But it was one of, it was essentially one of the conditions for success, right? This is a reason why this seemed like a potentially promising experiment. Um, and that's why, right, there was so much, you know, so much hope invested in Chile uh, was because it had this history. Um, yeah. And then, it, you know, it turned out by the 1970s, and 1980s, where you have this sort of southern cone of Latin America, uh, military regimes in, in Brazil, Argentina, and Chile. Yeah.
1: And then... Um... We sort of see that. And obviously, as you said, Allende is the first elected, uh, well, democratically elected and very open Marxist. Um, uh, and as and as, as we've already talked about, we see these tensions because obviously Cuba is seen as a potential example of a more radical, um, non-party-based, uh, revolutionary um, violence that, that succeeds. Um, and then Allende is trying his own thing. And then uh, the next country we get to in the book... Um, is, is, is interesting, and I suspect probably one that most people don't know that much about, uh, is Tanzania. And this comes out quite interestingly because it explicitly, um, and almost to its detriment at times, its sort of uh, unwillingness to engage with Marxist uh, notions of socialism, um, and instead pursues a very different path.
0: Well, so I picked Tanzania in part because Um, there's a lot of discourse around different kinds of socialism at this period of time. There's African socialism, Arab socialism. um, And, you know, the way these, the reason these socialisms are qualified is because um, their attempts to dissociate uh, the socialist programs of these countries from the Soviet Union and from kind of the Stalinist model or the Maoist model and the idea of, you know, collectivization and class struggle and purges and famine and such. Um, And so, you know, there were, these were attempts to dissociate. It was a different sort of model. Uh, and uh, the key to what was called African socialism. And I picked Tanzania in part because Tanzania really is kind of the most coherent, persistent uh, attempt to implement African socialism in practice. Um, the key element of African socialism is the idea that Africa does not have classes and therefore does not have class struggle in the classical Marxist sense. The idea is that it was only Western imperialists Um, who introduced kind of class differentiation and introduced uh, these sorts of divisions. And so once the Western imperialists were driven out, classes disappeared. Um, You know, the the simply, you know, the bourgeoisie were gone. They left. Um, And so Africa instead has these communalist traditions that preceded Western imperialism that could be resurrected after the Western imperialists leave, um, and these communalist uh, traditions can be the basis for a direct transition to socialism without having to have class warfare. If class warfare is seen as being you know, very divisive, uh, very violent, um, and precisely at a time when you have a post-colonial state that is trying to you know, create national coherence right, and build political institutions and create a national identity, the last thing you want to do is essentially attack your own elite Um, because you need the elite, right? You need, uh, you you need, you need your cities, you need, you need your elite, because you're trying to build this country. And so there was, you know, the reasons why they wanted to avoid class struggle. And so Tanzania's experiment in socialism really is, okay, well, if you don't have class struggle, and you don't embrace Marxist ideology, um, then how do you do this, right? How do you, and it would turn out, right, that, you know, instead of, if, instead of, uh, attracting foreign investment um, and trying to build domestic industry that way uh, you want to do self reliance through african communalist methods well that basically means that you have to develop an agricultural surplus export that surplus um, and get capital that way for investment and it's a very difficult path to 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 you know attempt to navigate because you know it, it's very slow and um it relies heavily on terms of trade and terms of trade of turning against tanzania at that point especially once you reach the you know the oil shock of the 1970s and um, all of a sudden, Tanzania is paying a lot more for imports than it paid for exports. Um, and so it's difficult to do this. Um, but they did this in part because they're not willing to embrace um, Marxist class struggle ideology, and therefore sort of join the Soviet camp and, you know, get their aid complete from the Soviet Union. Um, because that would not only would it, you know, lead to domestic political upheaval, but it would also mean basically giving up their hard won independence. Um, becoming dependent on an outside power. That's the last thing they wanted to do right after achieving independence is basically become enthralled to another imperialist power, uh, this time in Moscow or in Beijing.
1: And it's interesting because it's another one of these countries that we almost—we um, see this sort of two-way pull, right? Like at the start, it's like pre-independence and post-independence. It's far from the most radical country. Um, it doesn't have the same level of settlement as say somewhere like uh, what was then Rhodesia or Kenya, Um and I mean, doesn't even exist, at like Tanzania doesn't even exist as a country at independence. You obviously have the, like, Omani-influenced uh, former Sultanate of Zanzibar, um, or as it will be the former Sultanate of Zanzibar, and then you have, like, what was Tanganyika, um, who have very different, um, though geographically close, very different sort of um, cultural and historical backgrounds. And I mean, even the leader is uh, far from a a firebrand. It's not like a, uh, not like a Mandela who turns things down. In fact, it's actually the opposite way on. He starts off quite mellow and ends up ratcheting it up. Right?
0: Yeah. Well, so actually, this is. I mean, this is why both the Soviets and the Chinese were were so slow to embrace socialism in Tanzania. I mean, they looked at Nyerere. Nyerere, someone who seems you know he worked closely with the British in the last years of, of colonialism. Um, he specifically emphasizes right that you know we have to have a place for um both white European settlers and um you know South Asian immigrants in our society and they have to have a place in the legislature and the Chinese actually criticize him for being quote unquote non-racist, right? In the sense that, you know, if you know he should be the kind of person who wants to push the whites out of Africa, um and that's that's what they mean by racism. Um and they criticize him for being non-racist, for being willing to accept you know the role of of different ethnicities, different races in, in Tanzanian society. Um, and so they're very suspicious of the fact that he's he's not militant and he's not radical, and yet he sort of becomes radicalized between 1961 and 1967. It's interesting. You no, know, there are a number of reasons why this happens, and one is a series of sort of um, hostile encounters with the West, um, with 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 the British, with the Americans, um, with the West Germans. So you know the 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 British um, are seen as you know supporting people inside the government um, who are trying to. Uh, to to sort of slow his policies. Uh, They also, you know, are the ones who train the military, which will ultimately mutiny against uh, Nuretri in 1964. The Americans are seen as plotting against him. The West Germans are trying to, you know, uh, control his policy by telling him he can't recognize East Germany. So a series of hostile um, encounters with the West pushes him in that direction. Um, At the same time, he was, he did have a socialist, um, you know, view, but what was called, you know, a Fabian socialist view, kind of, um, uh, you know, older fashioned um, English nonviolent version of socialism, which he, he studied in, in, um, in the UK in the 1940s. Um, and, you know, he, he, he came to realize that it would take a more radical disruption for members of Tanzanian society, even in the ruling party, to adopt any sort of socialism because the ruling party was necessarily made up of, you know, local chiefs, local landowners, people who had a stake in the status quo and didn't really want disruption. Um, on top of that you had a lot of Western trained bureaucrats um, and so he began to understand that if you actually want to move towards socialism you do have to disrupt this and that means first of all transforming you know the ruling party. Um, so instead of changing the membership what he does he will actually just you know insist that everybody uh, divest themselves of their, their their land holdings and their businesses um, and you know everything else um, but he realized that you know you're not getting anywhere. Um, unless you push for greater disruption. And so uh, that's why, right, he, he sort of became radicalized both through international and through domestic political forces between 61 and 67.
1: I mean, think think this is the domestic element as well is something that came as a surprise to me. And I was familiar with people like Walter Rodney, who had been based at the University of Dar es Salaam, but I wasn't aware that it was this sort of... Um, intellectual hot pot for um quite a wide range of views right there's some very radical uh, left scholars and as you say there's more this traditional gradualist fabian reformist uh, some english scholars coming in i mean i think if people are familiar with sort of these outposts of sort of socialist discussion and leftist thought they're probably more familiar with uh, algiers or somewhere like that in in, the, in this time and es salaam's a little bit different um and as you said this internal um element also becomes a pull so it's a it's a rejection of the west and it's sort of um telling him what to do which he he doesn't take kindly to um and then there is also this internal development and he he plays with it a bit right He, he 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 doesn't he doesn't like. I like quite a lot of, shall we say, older uh, style socialist leaders would reject that radicalism um, and eventually be swept up in it or or, or, or or eradicate it and it'd be a problem, which is what we see sort of with Ayende a bit. Uh, but in this situation, he he sort of integrates it and works with it. Right? He uh, and he and this is one of the key things is where the Chinese really start to come in um, at this time as well.
0: Well, the interesting thing is that the Chinese, it seems. You know in a number of these cases including chile and tanzania as well um the chinese are at the most radical phase right this really is the cultural revolution in china um and so you know given sort of the radicalism of the approach in china they they don't really take seriously the socialist programs of people like allende or Nerere, who to their mind right are not nearly radical enough to be taken seriously as socialists that socialism it must involve violence it must involve you know social upheaval and the people who are trying to get to socialism by avoiding violence the social upheaval, are therefore deluding themselves or you know tools of capitalists um, and so the chinese have a close relationship with Nyerere, um, but it's basically an anti-imperialist relationship um, it's a relationship built on the idea that you know he's he's a bastion of anti-imperialism in africa um, and you mentioned, you know, the, the University of Dar es Salaam. So, I mean, the the political sort of geography of, of Tanzania is very interesting. The University of Dar es Salaam is on a hill, eight kilometers west of the center of government. Um, and so, there's this perpetual fear. On the one hand, there's this, you know, radical Western intellectuals. You mentioned you mentioned Walter Rodney. Um, there's John Saul. Um, there's a lot of different kinds of people who, you know, ultimately write many, many books about Tanzania um, later on um, because they were so involved in the University of Dar es Salaam at the time. Um, at the same time, you also have, you know, the ANC, Free FreeLimo, um, the MPLA, right, all the sort of liberation movements of Southern Africa are having tra- have training camps in Tanzania. That's their rear base, um, especially Mozambique. But, um, you know, the ANC famously has, has uh, training camps there as well. And so you have, you know, this other sort of presence of radicalism. Not the one the Chinese were interested in, really, is you know the Tanzania as the locus of the Southern African liberation movement. You know, those actually those fighting the colonialist regimes or the apartheid regimes. Um, so in that sense, right, that's that's where their interest in, in Tanzania really comes from. Um, but Nyerere does, right? I mean, the, the process of radicalization doesn't really stop for him um, until you know mid nineteen seventies at the earliest, because as you say, right, he, you know, he there is. There's pressure from the West and there's resistance to that. There's internal pressures. Um, and he keeps, you know, realizing the depths of internal pressure more and more until the point which, you know, he really becomes, you know, begins to listen more and more to those in the University of Dar es Salaam and those pushing the party further left. Um, and so, you know, it's it's 1973 is really the culmination of that when he orders full villagization, um, realizing that his efforts at voluntary socialism um, are not are not bearing fruit. Um, but the Chinese don't really, even though they're still in 1973, they're still in Tanzania in massive numbers, building the Tazara Railway. Uh, they never really come to embrace uh, Newari's model of socialism the way the Soviets do.
1: Well, I mean, this 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 false villagization. I mean, the scale of that was another thing that surprised me. I think I, I think in, is it 70 of the population we see uh, moved, and um, you say there were instances of violence, but compared to say the Cultural Revolution, it was not a violent thing. And yeah, this this rule of China. Um, which, as you say, goes back to this um, differing views of socialism, right? It's viewed through a prism and, uh, and, and there's this thing. I mean, skipping back a little bit, another thing that surprised me as well, um, though not entirely new, was um, how China had much less of an issue carrying on relations with Pinochet, who was this, obviously a very clear anti-communist. Um, and that would I'm sure that would come as a surprise to many again um but going back to tanzania um yeah there is this massive uh, shift and um i think it's probably of all the of all the examples in the book it's probably one of the m- more obvious um styles of trying to adapt to local circumstances right um and we see that very differently uh when we come to angola i mean and the, the chapter on angola opens with this with a quote. Um, from the leader of the MPLA who explicitly distances himself from uh, African socialism as long as, as well as Asian socialism and Spanish socialism because he says there is no such thing there is only socialism.
0: Yeah, exactly. So as I was saying right there's you know there was this movement in the developing world for you know different kinds of socialism right you know Arab socialism African socialism um, Latin American socialism and The Angolan leadership, when they come into power in 1975, the MPLA, they basically say, look, these are all, you know, attempts at really avoiding, you know, the only way that socialism can work, which is the proper Marxist model. Um, So they sort of saw these as mistaken heresies um, in the same way the Soviets initially saw them as kind of, you know, heretical movements. Um, You know, the, the, the initial Soviet reaction to these versions of socialism in the 1960s was that these are ways for you know, bourgeois reformists to blunt pressures for a socialist revolution by appropriating the term socialism to refer to really non-socialist things. Um, That's how they saw this. And, you know, in the early 1960s, they came around, right? The the very fact that they decided to support Nyerere proves that they had evolved past that by the late 1960s. Um, But then, you know, Nyerere fails, um, and socialism in Tanzania fails. and So they take that as a lesson that this is, you know, not a successful path. And so when, when the Golden leadership comes in, they've decided that this was a failed path, African socialism. Um, and now it's time to implement real marx leninism in Africa, which means industrialization, which means, um, you know, class struggle, which means alliance, formal alliance with, with the socialist camp, um, and which means, you know, a political structure of, you know, a, a Leninist party, you know, organized on the same, you know, principles with, you know, a central committee um, and different departments and a politburo, um, you know, a similar kind of party, a party of, you know, a revolutionary vanguard party, as it's called, um, which, you know, relies heavily on a security apparatus, um, you know, a large military and intelligence organization, a police organization. Um, and that, you know, this is how this is this is this is how it worked in the USSR. Um, this is how it worked in Eastern Europe. And this is the same model, you know, how it worked in Cuba. And this is how it's going to have to work in Africa. Um, so it's, it's this rejection of, you know, these sort of alternative paths in favor of, you know, the tried and true model, at least in the political sense.
1: I mean, at, at the same time, there is this, as you say, this, um, exporting of the model and it's in a way you could say it's almost my return to sort of a purism. Um, however, um, another thing that we do see, um, throughout the book is this, um, Back and forth between these countries and um, and the and the Soviets and the Chinese uh, about aid and about uh, support and sometimes there that that's a cause of worry because the Chinese are helping and the the Soviets aren't or the Soviets are and the Chinese aren't uh, but in Angola it sort of seems like the Soviet sort of patience for that has maybe run a little bit thin right because I it opens up and it's uh, within the first few uh, pages of the chapter in Angola we talk about. Um, how uh, the Soviets encourage uh, private capital, whether foreign or domestic, uh, to invest heavily in the minerals. Um, however, as you say, a key part of that is it needs to be this Marxist-Leninist party that has a, a strict hold on power. But this idea that private capital will fuel industrialization and then lead to a revolution is quite bizarre, I imagine, for many people who have this um, orthodox idea of Marxism uh, as this anti-capital, um, anti-business view.
0: Right. So, so as I say, right, it's, it's a return to orthodoxy in a political sense, um, but not, right, really in an economic sense. Um, and that's, that's a key distinction because if you look at the trajectory of Soviet, you know, involvement in the developing world, it really goes, it shifts from sort of exporting Stalinism to then exporting Leninism. Um, the idea in the early 1960s was that, you know, first you transform the economy. Um, if we have mass industrialization, Um, and we do it through state-led development, that will create a working class, working class will create a political party, you sort of, through changing the economic situation, you will change the social and political reality. Um, And that was the approach in the early 1960s, right? That's why, you know, massive state-led investment in industrialization, kind of like, you know, Stalin in the 1930s, that was the program. Um, And that was seen to have failed for a number of reasons. Um, First of all, the investments didn't necessarily work. Um, the political leadership was not willing to allow themselves to be replaced by, you know, communists and so on uh, and so on and so forth. So the idea of changing the material economy first as a way of changing the politics was seen to have failed. So instead, they reverse situation, um, and this, in certain ways, is almost a reverse right of, of kind of Marxist materialist determination. Um, so instead, what they do is they say, well, we control the political situation first, right? Institute, you know, make sure that a, a, a communist party, something that looks, you know that is it is ideologically correct, ideologically pure, is in charge of the political power, make sure they have the ability to enforce that right through the security apparatus. And once the political situation is secure, then we can be more experimental with the economic situation. So first of all, this has the benefit of removing the burden from the USSR, right? Of having to provide all that aid. Um, they, it's not as expensive for them. Um, if you know you can attract foreign direct investment instead of uh, you know Soviet uh, government aid. But it also means that the idea is that look, you know, these economies, are not going to be developed um, through state-led development. There's not enough capital. Um, It's also not how it happened elsewhere. So what we have is we have to have essentially like supervised capitalist development, Um, that capitalism is good at developing the means of production. And so we need capitalist development and capitalist investment, but we can't allow the capitalist economic structures to impact the political structure. Um, And so as long as we have trusted Marxist-Leninists in firm control of the political situation, we can allow foreign direct investment to happen um, without worrying that that's going to transform the political structures. So that's the idea, basically supervised capitalist development. Um, and what this leads to in Angola, um, and not just in Angola, but Angola is, is a very situation. Angola has this, it leads to an absurd situation in Angola where you actually have Cuban troops defending Gulf Oil, an American oil company, against... American armed, you need a guerrillas who are fighting the regime. So again, Cuban troops defending an American oil company against American backed guerrillas, right? That's where this ends up in Angola, um, which is kind of a geopolitical absurdity, but it, it you know, it's, it's a logical outcome of the situation in which you have um, capitalism at the service of communism um, in a political sense. Uh, and so uh, what this ends up with is, you know, because, you know, you want it, you want the growth, but you want it controlled politically. The most logical thing to do is say, well, the party should control not just right, the politics, but also the economy. And so in Angola, you have a state oil company, Sun Angol, which is also then run by key MPLA leaders because who can you trust you know, to, to be the capitalist better than you know, the social leaders themselves? Um, and so you have this marriage of political and economic power um, in a place like Angola, which is still the case, right? The MPLA to this day has never given up power, um, has never lost an election. Um, and, you know, the leaders of the Angolan economy are still key, you know, figures tied to the leadership of the MPLA. So you've had the situation where you basically have this sort of, you know, Leninist petrostate, state, um, which was not an accident. It was created on purpose because of the idea that, you know, supervised capitalism can only happen if the capital is in trusted hands.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that um, some listeners might be drawing comparisons perhaps with um, later uh, times maybe in China where you've got this notion of like the commanding the commanding heights of the economy and harnessing the productive forces. Um, so I, it's quite interesting to hear this happening uh, almost in a, in a separate uh, occurrence on a very different continent in a very different situation. Um, and I think what's also interesting, and this is something that uh, that I, once again I, I didn't know anything about until I read the book, is another uh, attractive element of the Leninist model for the MPLA is. Um, is linked to race, um, and 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 this seems to be a big thing because initially they're not even seen as the. Nobody's really placing any bets on them as a horse in this race. That that they are not the most popular group, right? There's three uh, or more different factions um, who shift across the spectrum, but these are not the these are not the favourites.
0: Right, so I mean, race has always been. Um, an Achilles heel of the MPLA, Um, and it certainly was during the liberation struggle. And the reason is um, that, you know, there was a lot of Portuguese settlement in Angola, um, and there was, um, you know, there were many mixed marriages, and um, those who were most privileged in Angolan society tended to be, you know, the white European settlers um, and their descendants, Um, and they were certainly privileged over the native Africans. Um, And the MPLA is mostly an organization of those who had Um, somewhat of a more privileged upbringing, those who were able to go to Luanda, or or not Luanda, to to Lisbon or to Paris um, to study. Um, And, you know, those were usually the the wealthier urban, um, you know, mixed race or or white um, Angolans. And so the MPLA really was a movement that took hold among whites and mixed race peoples, um, you know, of the more privileged segment of Angolan society. And so if, you know, for communists, this is, this is, you know, largely irrelevant at the time, right? The real identity is class-based. Everything else, as I said, is epiphenomenal, you know, race and ethnicity and nation and such. Um, And so class cleavages don't really matter. But for most Angolans, as for many, you know, most Africans, or for that matter, probably most people in in the colonial world full stop, um, oppression was seen first, you know, first and foremost in racial terms, um, that, you know, it was these white Europeans who are the oppressors, not, you know, the bourgeoisie or the ruling class, right? This is, You know, it's not about who holds the means of production. It's simply about, you know, first and foremost, about, you know, racial identity, right? That's the easiest way to identify your oppressors. Um, And so the MPLA always had this problem that, well, you know, they were also white or they were also mixed race. And if liberation meant anything to most people in Angola, it meant that, you know, there would not be white people ruling them anymore. Um, And so this was a problem for the MPLA. It was also a problem for the Soviet Union. Because the Soviets were trying to sell a story of oppression as being fundamentally about class in a region in which oppression was seen as being about race. Um, And they were always in danger of being accused of, you know, being white imperialists, just like, you know, the British or the French or the Portuguese or somebody else. Um, And this was a story the Chinese told very often about the Soviets, that the Soviets don't really care about you. The Soviets are willing to peacefully coexist with the West precisely because the Soviets are also racist white imperialists who don't care about, you know, peoples of color around the world. Um, and so it was a vulnerability both for the MPLA and for the Soviet Union. Um, and so the fact that, you know, the MPLA, you know, ultimately you have this leader, Agostino Nito, who is fully African and is black. Um, and, you know, it was very important that he not be replaced by one of his key lieutenants, you know, like Lucio Lara or Mario Andrade or someone else who was not fully African. Um, there was always a fear of, you know, who his successor would be. Um, but it was to the fact that Nito was a black African who was, you know, perpetually talking about how oppression is a matter of class and not about race that made him, you know, so convenient to the Soviet Union, right? It made him, you know, a, a, a useful ally, someone, you know, a, a black face who had their ideology, their non-racist ideology. Um, and they're especially vulnerable to attack on this. So, you know, the, the FNLA and, and UNITA, who are the other two major uh, liberation movements, mm-hmm. were both attacking the MPLA for being, you know, not African. Um, and at the same time, there were um, perpetual uh, mutinies inside the MPLA led by people like, you know, Daniel Chapenda, especially um, in 1973, 74, the famous Revolta del este, arguing that, you know, the MPLA was privileging this sort of, you know, what were called mestizos, mixed race um, elites over, you know, local Africans. Um, and, it, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't really end with independence, right? It, it ends um, in a certain sense with this massive purge in 1977 of the followers of a guy named Nito Alves. um who sort of rebelled against the MPLA leadership. Um, and, and ironically, it was a pyrrhic victory because what happened is, you know, for most of the MPLA rank and file, they saw the mestizos as the enemy. And so kind of the, the uh, Nitista orthodoxy um, became motivating, you know, behind the purge that followed uh, the repression of Alves. So the MPLA never really escaped this. And it's always made them very vulnerable, right? Vulnerable to attack of being you know, not really pure Angolan for this reason. Um, And so it it had this, you know, had this weird um, effect of, on the one hand, making them more useful to the Soviet Union, at the same time, making their rule, you know, more fragile in Angola, which always necessitated, you know, more impression and a more closed regime.
1: And I'm aware that uh, we're coming towards the ends of the time, and I, I don't want to miss out on Iran. And Iran is another example of this, um, I suppose, what we'd now talk about as terms of like intersectionality, right? That is, It is the intersection of class, and in any in instance of Angola, it's race um, and or ethnic group. I mean, that, that's one of the other key issues um, in Angola. Um, but in Iran, it's very different. I mean, when we talk about the Iranian revolution, it is... I mean, and 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 obviously, um, the premise of the book is to reassess what we think of as revolutions or as socialism. But the Iranian revolution, um, as a sort of theocratic-based um, uh, 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 victory um, for the for for, for literal clerics, uh, obviously underpinned with some sort of messages of social justice that draw upon like uh, Shia. Um, t- t- um framings of oppression and uh the discussions about imam ali and the sort of the justice coming from that um it still is not somewhere most people would consider as leftist unless um you were just doing broad strokes of everybody that's (laughs) anti-american yeah so i think i mean i think it's interesting
0: um i think most people when they look at the islamic republic of iran um and of course, you know the the kind of the superficial reading of it is that this is a sort of return to come some sort of medieval theocracy, um, that this is you know it's 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 a reversion in some way, It's kind of almost like a pre-modern form of government and the return of, of religion and power. Um, and I think that's I think that's misreading it um, completely. I think that um, what's interesting about the Islamic Republic is that if you understand. Sort of the, the the trial and error process the evolution of socialism in the developing world as I discussed throughout the book you see how this is a product of that evolution um, and it wouldn't have been possible you couldn't have had the Islamic Republic of Iran in the 1920s or in the 1940s it becomes possible only um, through this process um, and that is because you know as right as you begin to adapt socialism to the post-colonial context and you begin to adapt discourses uh, you begin to adapt discourses of identity discourses of ethnicity and race and nationalism and religion. Right. Then you can, you sort of mix these things. Um, And so, you know, what, what the Islamic Republic of Iran really is, is, is it's, it's a creation of this process. Um, So you have right throughout the 1960s, 1970s, especially, you know, in the wake of the 1967 six day war, um, you have kind of the collapse of, of the socialist model in the middle East of the idea, you know, along with pan Arabism Um, and, um, you know and this this plays on other critiques of socialism that had already been present especially in Iran. So Iran always had a very strong socialist presence and a strong socialist party in the 1940s and 1950s the two dads, are the largest party in Iran and they are basically the Communist party um, And what happens is is that you know socialism becomes discredited. Um, it seemed to have failed right it, it it failed to bring it failed to bring economic development it failed failed to bring economic justice um, and it also failed to bring, dignity and restoration on the international stage, right? And that was what was really symbolic, especially in 67, right? It failed to restore the place of these Middle Eastern states um, and the post-colonial states more broadly, right, to their position of international dignity and, you know, independence vis-a-vis the West and the imperial powers. And so socialism is actually, you know, or Islamism is a replacement for socialism in the sense that, you know, it makes the claim, and this goes back to, you know, Ayatollah Taleghani, who's you know, the, the Imam Jum'eh of, of the major mosque in Tehran in the 1940s at a time when most of the youth of Tehran is attracted to socialism through the Tudeh party. Um, he actually adapts Islamism to say that Islamism can do what socialism claims to do, but it can do it better. Islamism, you know, Islam can provide social justice. Islam can provide economic development. Islam can provide, you know, anti-imperialism and national dignity and national self-assertion. Um, and so it's a response to the failure of socialism Um, And it's enabled by the very fact that socialism is now adapting, you know, religious discourses, ethnic discourses, nationalist discourses. Um, And so that's why, right, not only does the Islamic Republic come to power, um, but it comes to power with the alliance of the left, right? The two dead at the urging of the Soviets and the East Germans supports Khomeini in his path to power precisely because they see him, right, as the true anti-imperialist leader of the revolution, Um, And of course they believe that, you know, they, the reason they adapt religious nationalist, you know, ethnic discourses is because they believe that these things are epiphenomenal and ultimately will disappear. But the thing is, you know, first you have to get people on board. Um, And you get them on board with these discourses and then you get them to, you know, no longer feel these discourses are important. And then down the road, they begin to understand that really it's all about economics and it's all about class and the stuff about, you know, nationalism and religion or whatever wasn't important. Um, And so they figure that, you know, support Khomeini in six months, two years down the road. Right. Once people realize that, you know, religious leaders can't run an economy, then power will fall into our hands. Right. The religious religious authorities can't possibly run a country in the modern world. Um, And of course, 40 years later. Right. They're still in power. Well, Soviet Union is gone. Um, but that was the idea, right? So they actually not only did they did they set the stage for the rise of, of Islamism to power, but they actually helped it along politically.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is um, obviously especially relevant um, in contemporary discourse as well, where we talk, where we see these sort of um, these third world or div- less developed world or uh, global south alliances emerging, and obviously sometimes that can be problematic because you can see clashes, say, with LGBT rights in the Western left, and possibly more um, or, le- or less tolerant views um, amongst the global south. Um, and while we're talking about contemporary things, and as we sort of draw things to a close, um, can uh, can I ask what your what, what, what's in the pipeline uh, next? Is it is it that chapter on Nicaragua? <laughs> um,
0: it's not a chapter on Nicaragua per se, but one of the projects that I would like to work on um, is a book on sort of the new left in the West in global context from the 1960s towards the end of the Cold War. Um, and there are many reasons for this, but you, you mentioned Nicaragua. And I think, you know, I mean, I, I do think there is socialism as this global process. And if you look at, you know, the re of socialism in the West, um, you know, we, we think now about Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn and, you know, uh, AOC and people like that. Um, and this, you know, this traces back to the 2016 campaign and before that to Occupy Wall Street. And before that, kind of its, its major sort of, you know, coming out party was really sort of the WTO protests in Seattle, I think about 1999 and 2000. Um, when it became, you know, anti-globalization. So where was it, right, between, you know, we remember, you know, the Red Army Faction and the Weatherman in the 1970s, and then all of a sudden, right, it's back in 1999. Where was it in between? Um, And part of that answer is, you know, if you think about it as a global process, where it was was in part in Latin America. Um, That's where kind of the most, you know, most productive, most sort of fertile socialist political, you know, and intellectual thought was, Um, in the 80s and 90s Um, and Nicaragua is a key element of that right Um, so I think you know part of the story so there will be (laughs) so I'm not going to write a chapter on Nicaragua in the way that I wrote in this book but I think but Latin America will play a very important role um, in that story about you know how you know the the global context in in which the new left in the west moves from where it was in 1960 and sort of divorced from the old left um, and how it set the stage for the kind of return of the left that we now have um, in the west right now so that's that's the project that I would like to work on. Um, at least it involves somewhat less research in Moscow, so that might be more feasible. Um, but you know, I'm sort of, now we're coming out of COVID, it might be time to, to hit the archives again.
1: I mean, that sounds incredible. And I think it's wonderful that it still fits in with this bigger pattern, as you say, of this evolution and development, as well as this reassessment of what, looking beyond these um, tick box lists, ideas of socialism. Um, so on that note, I really want to thank you uh, for joining us today and and for writing this wonderful book. Um, I've recommended it to many friends, and I'm sure our listeners um, will be very interested in it. Um, I mean, we've discussed it quite a lot today, but I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of detail, and I was very impressed in how it doesn't overwhelm. Um, it's, it can be quite hard, especially with um ideological and political and economic sort of developments just to not like throw facts and that has happened in other books i've read and this 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 uh, navigates that tightrope quite well without dumbing things down so thank you very much for joining us and thank you for the book
0: thank you very much thomas